This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. We've got a special show today. It's, uh, we're recording this to air in the summer of 2017. Uh, we've got some friends over from, from London who are cheese experts, and they're launching a new book. So everyone's going to introduce themselves. It's a little off topic for me. It's cheese and cider and beer today on Beer Sessions Radio. Hi, I'm Bronwyn Percival, and I'm a co-author with my husband, Francis, of a new book called Reinventing the Wheel. Hello, I'm Bronwyn's husband, Francis. I write about food and wine for a magazine, The World of Fine Wine, uh, in London. Hello, I'm Bronwyn's husband, Francis. (laughs) Hello, I'm Greg Blaze. I'm a cheesemonger at Italy, and I host a show on the Heritage Radio Network called Cutting the Curve. And it's great to have you on. A couple years ago, we kicked off New York City Beer Week with Ann Sachs and me and you on on Cutting the Curve. It was a great show. Hi, I'm Nina Stein-White, and I run Bobolink Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey, with my husband, cheesemaker Jonathan White, and I do the breads. And you make great breads, and you brought some cheese and uh, bread And for bread us as well, try. yes. Great. Hi, I'm Steve Millard with Murray's Cheese. I am a cheesemaker, affinor, and restaurateur, as well as a retailer. All right, so we're going to have a good show today. Just for our untapped friends, um, we're Steve and I are drinking the Industrial Arts Pilsner as our first beer. So... Um, let, let's give us some background on, on, on the book. Start with that. What's the book about? Because it's, it's very interesting, and you're kind of doing things that everyone wants to do, now, kind of funky fermentation, things like that. Well, the subtitle of the book is Milk, Microbes, and the Fight for Real Cheese. And really, it's an exploration of how cheese has changed in the last 150 years and how actually cutting-edge science is allowing us to look back to go forward. That's great. Yes, I, I think it, it's... The, the idea that now with technologies like high-throughput DNA sequencing, we're giving scientists the capacity to study uh, microbial communities rather than individual microbes, now we have the capacity to, to essentially to revalorize and to, to venerate the, techni- the techniques of our great-grandparents and actually to realize that they're much more interesting scientifically. That the idea of this, this sort of mid-20th century idea of we must have a kill stage, we must destroy everything and then replace it with the individually chosen uh, microbes that we, that we have carefully selected, actually it's, it's boring science and it's boring cheese. And how by looking back towards uh, the techniques of, of the 19th century and earlier, there is much more compelling academic work to be done and I think you've probably spoken with people like Ben Wolfe at Tufts or Rachel Dutton at UCSD and there's also much more diversity much more compelling it allows us to regain the link 
in cheese making between cheese making and dairy farming rather than producing cheeses essentially from from laundered milk that however small your level of production is because your your interventions your cheese making is so aggressive you could be making you could be making it with industrial milk you could be making it with magnificent wonderful small farmhouse milk let's go let's go around the room too so this is a little intro to, to this couple so, in the book, and you're pretty famous to us, you know, Neil Jarre in, in, in England. Yeah. Why don't you each say something, your interests in meeting these guys and types well, I mean, of projects. I'm a cheesemonger, so I look at cheese through that lens more often than any other. You know, I understand the cheesemaking process. I think to be a good cheesemonger, that's something that you really have to do. Um, I know that uh, the reasons why I came to work with cheese um, are very uh, lock, are very sort of locked into um, a more sensory or... Uh, philosophical or epistemological like version of how cheese is made so anytime that we take a look at things like that rather than science which I was good at but hated um, you know I'm all for that you know and anything uh, that's put out there any information that that makes because I'm the end user before the customer you know what I mean the, you know so anything that improves that product to get to me I'm all for it great Nina you also have a backstory with Bronwyn don't you oh absolutely and um um, my husband Jonathan and I, we uh, ruined some perfectly good kitchen hobbies in 2002 uh, by buying cows and getting our own milk in order to make the best cheese we could and uh, setting that industry back to the age that Francis is speaking about. Uh, so it's really exciting. I can't wait to read this book because I have the feeling that it's going to affirm what we've chosen to do with our lives. And uh, it's very difficult when you separate the dairy farming from the cheese making because in the process of holding that milk and in the process of transporting that milk, the milk begins to degrade immediately. And I'm very proud to say that at Bobbling Dairy and Bakehouse, the milk transportation involves one pipe and one hose. And that milk is made into cheese daily, April through November. So this is, this is just fantastic uh, in that the, the science and the beneficial microbes that can be captured in this manner cannot be recreated in a lab in any, in any profound way. So. That's deep. First, I want to say just you've got some great projects that I've learned about with Mari's Cheese. You guys have a, a fabulous cheese cave in Long Island City. We do. We're aging uh, about 25 cheeses right now that we start from a green state and age them through to a finished product. Uh, some are short-aged, 21-day uh, projects. Some are 12-month uh, projects with a cloth-bound cheddar uh, that we just started selling about two weeks ago that we started making up at Cornell University. Um, you know, for us, most of what we do in the affinage is taking a product that's already been made, so we have to find some really good cheesemakers that we work with and trust, and uh, the, you know, the people that we work with are, uh, by and large, farmstead cheesemakers that are uh, passionate about not only making cheese, but the farm, uh, the health of the animals, what the, what the animals are eating, and uh, it comes into the finished product. So what do you, you guys are all cheese people. What do you guys talk about when you get together? That's what we're going to do now. You're in the room with me. We're drinking a little beer. We'll drink some cider soon. I don't really know much about cheese, but I love it. So, you know, let's start a conversation. I had a question. And, you know, you know the, che the milk goes from the, from the, from the dairy to the, to the cheese-making facility or the farm to the dairy, the same spot. It travels the least amount of time and, uh, and space to get Absolutely. from the animal to the vat, right? 
right. through so, a wall. <laughs> so what's your because of the, using that as a model? I mean, how do you feel about like the cheese as, as it's transported away from the dairy and goes to like say a big city cheese shop? You know, should everybody just sell the stuff near to where it's made? Well, that would be ideal. Although uh, one of the issues that the industry is going to face and does face, and we are currently, for the most part, marketing our cheeses ourselves rather than putting them into a distribution chain. Because our cheeses express a daily terroir. They change from batch to batch according to the weather, according to the stage of the grasses, according to the time of each cow's lactation or milk giving throughout the season. So my drum cheese in June is going to be different than my drum cheese. This drum cheese that I have on the table today was made in November, and now it's May, so it's super aged. And we call it the same cheese, but it will vary from batch to batch. So in gaining this relationship with the direct feed, it's, very, it's a very interesting marketing dilemma. I, I, if I can interject, I think the, this is inherently what cheese is a technology designed to do. Right. Cheese is about hitting that distant market. Yeah. It's about taking, I have my milk here, and I want to sell my cheese in Singapore. I want to sell my milk in Singapore. I want to sell my milk. I want to find where I can take my cheese, my, my, my produce of my farm, and find the best value. Yeah. And cheese is a brilliant hijacking of the digestive system of ruminants. To, it's an ingenious technology to be able to take this thing which is heavy, which is inherently intensely fragile, milk, right. and to be able to turn it into something which allows me, I mean, it could be just to take my milk down the, down the side of a mountain or keep my milk until right. the, the winter when we're not milking, or it could equally be I want to put it on a boat and I want to send it across the Atlantic. Right. And I think that, that for me is the exciting thing about cheese because it's the capacity to heal that sort of urban-rural divide that we, we, we hear so much about in the UK with Brexit, in the, in the US with uh, the recent election, but this, this, uh, this idea that cheese, and we see this in the US with things like, like what, what Nina's doing, we, we see this with things like the, the, the Keeler's projects in Jasper Hill. Cheese provides something you can do in remote rural parts of marginal land mm -hmm that allows you then to reach markets that will pay a healthy premium for it in a way that there are very, very few other agricultural products. And if you're making on the farmhouse well, level... that's as well, and you can charge as much for it. Well, because if, and if you're Stuff processing at the farmhouse <laughs> level, you are completely decommoditizing your production because right. suddenly it's not generic cow's milk that I'm, that I'm buying. It is yeah. the product of Bubblelink Dairy, and it's a product which, yes, it's, it's a batch date. It's a cheese made in November, or it's a cheese made in June. And, and suddenly we, we have that sort of direct uh, connection. You can, if you're an, if you're an affinaire, if you're a cheese buyer for a, for a, for a commercial organization, you can come and you can select, and you can then, you can pass it even more. You can say, I like these batches most, I'm going to charge most for this. Or if I'm a cheese maker, I can charge you the most for these ones because these, these are, these are my best batches. Right. It's cheese, cheese is milk decommodified, and I think that's the biggest and most important point to make. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about how you guys got started. Like, let's change it up a little bit. So you guys are, wrote a book about cheese. 
you know, you worked at Nails Jerry's. Give us your backstory. So the book really sprang from conversations that we had across the dinner table. Arguments. Arguments, yes. <laughs> Heated conversations. <laughs> <laughs> um, Francis works with wine a lot, and within the wine industry, there's already a very, there are a lot of heated discussions going on there, too, about what quality is and why some wines are worth more than other wines and how the flavors of farming can be manifested in something that you can taste. And how processing can actually bring out those flavors rather than covering them up. And there's so many analogs between that and cheese making. And it feels like in many ways the, the cheese industry hasn't, isn't quite having those conversations yet in the same way that wine is. And the book really sprang from those heated arguments as we hashed out these ideas from wine over, you know, over dinner, night after night, and really thinking how can we, how can we take some of these ideas and really Start, start a conversation for cheese that helps us think about cheese in the same way. You know, it's interesting that the, the industrial world uh, doesn't yet recognize that cheese is a product that gets better with age. And uh, certainly you know that very well, that it's not only can it be transported, but it can, the older it gets, the more transcendent it becomes. <laughs> No, that, that you taste milk, and all milk tastes milky. You taste curd, and it's kind of bland, maybe a little bit sour and salty, and it can be nice. But in terms of actually having that expression of the potential of the milk through the lens of the microbes and all of their enzymes that are breaking down the curds, the, the, that whole process, things get more complex with age. And then at a certain point, they get as complex as that they're going to get, and you can age cheeses for too long, and they taste muddy too. And having the expertise to know when that happens is really... Steve, you know, you're working with Mari's Cheese. You know, everyone talks about Neil's Yard. Tell us a little bit about what you think of English cheesemakers and Neil's Yard. And, you know, there's some mythology in your head, I'm sure, that you love these guys. Well, uh, 20 years later, the reason why I'm still in cheese is because of a... Uh, uh, chance encounter I had with Jason Hines and uh, a little piece of Colson Bassett Stilton that I was trying. Um, I was on vacation a month ago and spent a week uh, a little bit with Nail Jar Dairy and visiting some cheesemakers out in the country and uh, so my my appreciation of what they do has grown exponentially from that trip and had a wonderful visit with Graham Kirkham and got to see the way that, you know, he's making his cheese and we talked a lot about how he is trying to go back to the way that Lancashire was made, pre-industrial cheese making, and yeah, um, the struggles around you know, trying to find that right mix in the flavor of the cheese, because really, when you're using those, those bought-in cultures, you're, you're tasting the cultures and not the cheese, and not the milk that's in the cheese. Just uh, what are some other English cheeses that we should know about that Neil's Yard features? Go ahead. Well, I, I would say that Neil's Yard Dairy, certainly, in, 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 if you're looking at it from the U.S. market, Neil's Yard Dairy are leaders in British territorial cheeses. I think that the interesting thing is that the, the British territorial cheeses like Graham Kirkham's Lancashire, they're cheeses that aren't, I think, poorly understood uh, in the uh, in the U.S. To, to be honest, they're poorly understood pretty much everywhere outside the region of, of the U.K. that they're that they are produced in. But these ideas of things like Kirkham's Lancashire, Appleby's Cheshire, cheeses like Somerset Cheddars, uh, like uh, interesting newer projects like like Hafford, a very interesting uh, cheddar being made in a very very remote part of Wales, and I think a great expression of hill farming on super marginal Welsh lands by uh, made uh, at the farm of, of Patrick Holden, who's one of the uh, 
leading players, I think, within the, gl the global sort of sustainability movement uh, and has been organic there for over 40 years. And I think it, it, it's very interesting when you see the biodiversity of, of the fields that he has there, you then see the work of developing this cheese is how do we capture that? How do we make sure that a naive consumer who hasn't had this great backstory, who doesn't know that Patrick was uh, in charge of the Soil Association for umpteen years, how, how do they immediately engage with that cheese just from tasting it? You know, it's funny is that Francis wasn't even going to sit in on the show initially. <laughs> and we, wa we wanted you to talk. It's mostly the English accent. We're going to take a short break in a minute, but Nina... We're going to taste your cheese on the break. Which one should we taste first? Uh, I'm thinking today that we'll try the drum first. The drum cheese I describe as an expression of our daily terroir. So it is always made as an 8 to 10 pound round cheese that is shaped like a tom-tom. And uh, because it is a raw milk cheese, it is aged at least 60 days. And we've enjoyed it as old as 10 months, and it's still gorgeous. It just gets deeper and deeper. Uh, it's smaller than its cousin, Jean-Louis, which is named for Chef Jean-Louis Paladin, who was very supportive of uh, Jonathan's cheese making and encouraged us to get our own cows to get more control over our own milk. And the Jean-Louis cheese is made as a 20 to 25 pound wheel, so it gets a bolder flavor simply because it ferments for two extra days because it's so much bigger that it actually takes longer to cool down to cave temperature of 55 degrees. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. I can do this. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, you know, it could be called Beer and Cider and Cheese Sessions today. We've got Greg Blaze from Cutting the Curb with me. How you doing, Jimmy? You know, we are talking about uh, on a way in pairing some cheeses. We had drum from Bobolink, and um, Bronwyn said, you know, do you want to have beer or cider? And she said cider. So we're figuring out in the back room at Jimmy's number 43. We waited for the culinary historians to come in. This is going to be a, a great night. We've got Bronwyn and Francis Percival with their new book, Reinventing the Wheel. And um, we're doing a remote show that we're going to air in the summer right before their book comes out. So what do you guys think about pairing uh, cheeses and ciders? 
Um, I think I think cheese and cider are a great match, both um, from a flavor point of view, but also philosophically, because they're made in very much the same way. You have an agricultural product, in this case, apples or other fruit, and then you let it ferment with the aid of natural yeasts, and you get something that amplifies the qualities of the fruit and really brings them out, just like with cheese, you're doing essentially the same thing with the milk. I love them together. Mm. I think that, that 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 key of discovering flavor through fermentation is one of the interesting things that you, you see see with grapes as well. Wine doesn't taste like grapes, and in the same way that if we were to eat these apples, it, we're not eating apples. We're eating. We're drinking. We're drinking the cider. We're drinking something more aromatically complex, more diverse, something that's revealed more of its own character through that act of fermentation. Yeah. Fatty foods and acidic foods go quite well together. You know what I mean? Like they, they bring out the best in each other. Cider and cheese always does that for me. And Steve, uh, Maurice, you guys have the, the, the cheese and wine bar, and you guys do a lot with Cider Week. What, what's your feeling about cider and, and cheese together? You know, from day one with the restaurant, we've always had a pretty nice uh, cider menu. And, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of local ciders with the local cheeses that we're serving. And, you know, we're a firm believer that. What grows together goes together. So, you know, a local Vermont cider is going to go really wonderful with a Vermont cheese. Great. You know, Reinventing the Wheel, this is a great book. I'm looking forward to coming out. And, um, you know, the, the prologue chapter is The Lost World. Tell us about that, Francis. You it know, Francis is the shy one. He wasn't even going to come on the show. It is a, it is a he's book, talking more I than think, anyone built else. around alternately Conan Doyle and Michael Crichton references. Uh, in that this idea, I mean, if, if we were to think of, of this Jurassic Park Hello. world, uh, and, the, and what what are the scientists doing in Jurassic Park? In Jurassic Park, they are taking the degraded dinosaur DNA from the sample, the mosquito that they've got in the amber, and then they're trying, they don't have a complete uh, sequence, so they fill it in with frog DNA. And essentially, this is, this is the, the, how we're trying to reinvent the wheel, that we have this degraded DNA of what these, what these historical cheeses were like, <coughs> and we're trying to find where is, where is the technical knowledge, where is the research, where is the historical stuff, where's the experiments we can set up ourselves that allows us to fill in. Often it's from France, so the frog DNA is a bit of a pun. But uh, it allows us to fill in this information. And as, as we say in our conclusion, we are essentially we're rewriting sort of Jurassic Park with uh, cheeses as velociraptors. But in this in this case, we're very much on the side of the dinosaurs. We want those dinosaurs to go and eat some people. Are, are French and cheese and English cheeses? that different or the approach to cheese making or you just like to poke fun at each other? Um, <laughs> I think English, the English and French never lose an opportunity to poke fun at one another. The interesting thing is that French cheese making technology by and large is quite different than English cheese making technology because the acidification and the drainage, which are the two major um, aspects of the cheese making process, are aligned completely differently in French and English cheese. And English cheese is really unique because the drainage and the acidification have to be aligned absolutely perfectly with one another or you get all of these horrible textural defects. You get cheese with the texture of sand. And if you align them just right, you can get cheeses that are incredibly milk expressive, very transparently tasting of the milk of the farm. You don't have oozy textures to hide behind. You don't have funky rinds. But what you do have is an encapsulation of that milk. 
And absolutely. And what I would also say about France is that there are regions within France where you have, they have retained vibrant cultures of farmhouse production. If we go to the Auvergne, there are over 200 producers of farmhouse Saint-Nectaire. And with that, with that being a, a key driver of economic activity for the region, you have the clusters of supporting industries. You have the government-funded scientists who will look at your problems. You have strong appellations, strong collective identities, which means lots of different cheesemakers are all pooling their resources to solve their collective problems. And and that, that means that if, if you want to know something about uh, the science of these cheeses, you have access to research scientists who will who'll find you solutions to those problems. Yeah, and England, not so much. Well, I was going to say, uh, I completely forgot we actually make a cheese that we wash with cider. Uh, it's a Shaxbury cider that we wash uh, Greensward, which starts as a, its life as a green harbison from Jasper Hill. Um, and, and we switched from actually washing that cheese and beer to cider because it felt like the sugar contents and the flavors that we're getting out of the cider was uh, significantly better than the beer. And Nina, I know that uh, your husband Jonathan always talks about Charles Rose and uh, the I iron... Ironbound Cidery, cider. yes, which is only 10 minutes from our farm. And, uh, you know, cider and cheese are both ways of taking in a temperate area, is taking the harvest and fermenting it and perhaps dehydrating it so that it can be kept longer. Uh, so it's, it's a very uh, historic pairing because then you've, you've taken your apples, you've crushed them, you've let them ferment so that they will keep longer with all these wonderful natural yeasts actually preserving them. And you've taken your milk and allowed the good bacteria in there to multiply, eat all the milk sugars, and drain out the water, and then you've got your milk beautifully preserved. And then in the dead of winter, you go in your basement and you grab these things, and they are so delicious right around the fire. And that's, that's almost a, you know, an anthropological event. It is an anthropological event in that people have been doing this for millennia in order to save their harvest for winter where they would starve if they hadn't done these things at harvest time. One of the really interesting things, I think one of the absolutely incredible things is how these processes developed before anyone knew what microbes were and how through trial and error over those millennia, cheeses developed to solve the problems that were posed by their particular areas of origin. And when you look back at the methods that developed to wrangle microbes without even knowing that they existed. I think it's one of the one of the miracles of human civilization, these fermented foods. Yeah, and oddly, you know, um, some people were accused of witchcraft because they could make the butter break in a certain bucket, which happened to have the good microbes. And it wasn't that they were witches, it's that they had a bucket that had good microbes in it where a different bucket might not. And the particular wood that that bucket was made of was particularly conducive. Well, I won't touch that. But likewise, you know, thinking of, thinking of wooden <laughs> buckets, the story um, that we start the book with is based in the Auvergne where these producers, these cheesemakers, are making a cheese called Salaire. And it's made in a wooden barrel. 
the milk, they milk the cows in the field, the milk goes directly into these wooden barrels, and actually that barrel acts as a natural starter factory. Sure. That the biofilms within the wood inoculate that milk with high levels of the right microbes to make salar cheese within seconds. And the public health authorities came down hard on them a couple of, you know, probably in 2012. What painful stories, yes. yes. Like, what is the... Is the, are, they, are those authorities? Is, the, is their greatest fear what they don't know, well, or are they altruistic in their in their effects to save or help, or is it all because the person in me really just says that that's all just total bullshit that 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 it's all attached to some way to make more money for others that aren't the people that they choose to oppose. You know, it's an interesting theory, and I think in this case, you can look at those health authorities and their rationale, and I think they were just trying to do the right thing. I think in their modern conception of food ignorance. safety, yeah, that for them, this was um, milk that was um, milked from cows whose calves had been allowed to suckle to clean the teats, and to them, that was a mixture of milk and calf spit that was allowed to sour in a wooden bucket, and that's not clean. The brilliant end to the story was that these salary producers went to seek the help of the local scientists who were funded by the producers group, and they did a few rudimentary high-throughput tests on that and validated these effects and showed how the communities in those wooden vats were capable, even when they were spiked with listeria, of out-competing the pathogens because they were so vibrant and robust. Just so, you, and that's my point, I guess, is that so the scientists have to line up on the right side of the problem, because they're the ones with the intrinsic knowledge, you know. But if their science is manipulated, you know, by people who have another agenda, mm -hmm. then that's what you get. You, you know, know, this is, is dangerous. Don't put it in your mouth; it'll kill you. Totally. And one of one of my favorite chapters in the book is the one where we look at risk and how, you know, there's some really interesting research that's going on. It's more sort of psychology than it is right. anything else, but on this whole concept of cultural cognition, on how people's values shape how they look at facts. And that when you look at the approach of these perhaps heavy-handed regulators, they are, they are embodying their values of top-down authoritarian you know, management of people and really modern you know, valuing modernity rather than traditional techniques. Right. At the other side, we have the sort of libertarian traditionalists who are, you know, you can see the old ways cheese coalition or the cheese of choice. Love they those body, I, they're, they're amazing. The way that they couch their argument is all about, this is great because it's traditional, this is great because it's existed for well, thousands of years. But that's my point, really, I guess. Cheese of choice. <laughs> but, 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 see, this, this, is, this is the problem. Reinventing the wheel. You cannot in a book. You, that would be when, awesome in a when you, way for him. Oh, yeah. That's good for me. When you divide, when you have that, that, that divide, that cultural divide, yeah. And are trying to have have a conversation, the two positions become inherently more antagonistic. If you try debating climate change with a climate change denier, it's essentially the the the, the, the same set of uh, set of conversations. And the problem is, if you want to fund the old ways cheese coalition, you send out a mail shot which says the government wants to deny you the right to enjoy this traditional practice. The problem is if you actually want to have a progressive dialogue with your regulator, you need to, to, to express it into we as responsible producers need regulation because regulation is what keeps everyone fair. It allows me to prosper as a responsible producer. And I need then to embrace the science. I need to say, I am the person who owns the science, 
And you as the regulator are the people who are, who are embracing magical thinking because you're denying the peer-reviewed science. And you can only have that engagement, a, a, a really useful conversation, if you can have that cross-cultural engagement. If you can shape your message in the terms that will culturally engage your regulators or, or your political adversaries. That's great. And But for, first, Steve and Nina. So Steve at Murray's, you know, I think we're going to talk about raw milk cheeses. You can give me a little primer on this. We're kind of going there. But does Murray's sell raw milk cheeses? You know, how long do cheese have to be aged for you guys to sell them, just for a general information? We do sell a lot of raw milk cheeses. Um, you know, in the U.S., the cheese has to be aged for a minimum of 60 days. Um, you know, beyond 60 days, you know, there's obviously some some discussion that the FDA is happening these days to look at extending those 60 days to 90 days. Um, you know, I had a conversation with Teo at Jasper Hill, and, you know, his feeling is Wintermere is actually safer younger. That, that 60 days, there's uh, the, the bacterial growth in that cheese is actually increased. Um, you know, it really comes down to, like, what we do in the caves. You know, it's really a, what are our, our, our food safety systems and what are we doing to uh, minimize and reduce the risk that we have within our caves. It requires a lot of testing, a lot of, uh, you know, we have two scientists that are running our caves. You know, we're taking science to the art of what we're doing and, um, you know, really making sure that what we're doing is serving our customers safe quality food. And it's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. You know, there's, you can go to a farm and buy raw milk, but you're buying direct, the consumer's buying directly from the farmer. In the instance of us actually selling products to the consumer, we're the ones that are uh, guaranteeing that that food is safe. So the consumer is looking at us like we have done our job to make sure that the food is safe. Um, you know, so that we have to do further work and effort to make sure that that happens. And that's where the regulation comes into play. And that's where people look to folks like the FDA and the USDA to say, well, aren't you doing your job to make sure the food is safe? Uh, because at the end of the day, the consumer is so far removed from the source of the food that, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, the industrialization has forced a lot of these regulations on. Oh, you can trace the history of the alienation of food production through uh, food regulations. So if you have your brewing act or your regulating milling, it's, it's the sign that suddenly most commonly moves out of domestic production. You're, yeah, you're, you're buying from people you don't know. You've never met them. Can you trust them? Well, often it's like three, four, five times removed, if not more. Yeah. Food safety regulation is like most effective on the local level. That's how it works. My father was a Board of Health official in our town for 20 years. Knew all, you know what I mean? Like the, like the, the regulators that you're going to deal with are those people. And if you don't know them and they don't know, if there's not some common sense values there, Well, here's the issue, however. You know, years ago, I toured some huge dairy farms. Mm -hmm. And it's much more common in the developed world to have dairy farms that have upwards of a 1,000 cows in headlocks, eating feed, never moving off the spot. And that is not a place from which you would want to drink the raw milk. I'm sorry. Those cows are... that, That atmosphere... That set of systems is so conducive to pathogens in so many different directions. And so it's understandable that the regulations were created to prevent the diseases that could be harbored and then transmitted through that system. The local inspector knows which farm is which and knows how to treat those those people with a different... Well, however, they are within 
the standard of acceptable activity at this time. And it's going to, you know, cold day in June, maybe never, when we break out of that model again and get back into a model of 100 cows on 100 acres and then have the cheese made on that and on the next 100 cows and 100 acres and then trucked to Murray's off notch. That is when the farmers will be making a good living again. That is when the fields will be vibrant with polyculture of grasses, when the erosion and the pollution and all those issues will be arrested. Will it happen? I hope so. It's happening on our acreage, and that's part of the reason that we've chosen to have a very small circle and just trudge along making a variety of cheeses on the spot so that when you drive an hour and 15 minutes from New York City or Brooklyn to get to Bobolink Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey, you will be able to buy a little bit of each and get some bread and get some eggs from my chickens. And we do um, feed our whey to pigs so you have whey-fed pork right there on the spot. And it's the whole supermarket yeah. right there uh, because that's a way to, for us to make a living doing this because the whole infrastructure that existed 150 and 200 years ago throughout the world is unthreaded completely. We need let's, to bring it back. Let's keep this going. We're not going to yes. take a break. We're just going to keep talking right. on this. So you, you know, go, Bronwyn. I think Steve also, I think I really agree with the point that he made about looking at different systems by really analyzing the risks, doing a hazard analysis, and, you know, a one big dairy farm with a thousand cows is going to have a completely different set of risks than the small, you know, than bobbling dairy would where you have cows really grazing extensively. And each farm looking at its specific system, looking at the way it makes cheese, looking at the way it raises the animals, and looking at, at every step how to reduce that risk, that is the way to safety. And then you have this situation, like Greg says, where you have the regulators and the cheesemakers recognizing that they're working on the same team, that everybody has the same end goal, which is to make safety. That's the same separation of state and federal government that's existed in this country since it began. You know what I mean? The state people are always going to look out for their farmers, still, you know, protect them from the more... Well, I think it's a newer problem than you think, however, because pasteurization really only came in... State versus federal is a newer problem, I think. Um, well, and, and the whole regulatory, dairy regulatory rules that are in effect currently are as recent as the 1920s uh, when there was um, a, an interdependence between poorly nourished dairy workers in the, the modernization of dairy with confining cows and feeding them often whiskey mash sharing air with the dairy workers and there was a tuberculosis issue among the cows and among the workers. There's a lot of problems in the country in the 20s. Right, absolutely and that was one of them and that's one of the things that pasteurization and a lot of the milk regulatory rules, the 60-day rule, all came at that time uh, and, and it was really because of the unhealthy situation the, the tuberculosis actually didn't go from cow to human and from human to cow, but it was that they were all just in a stressed environment, uh, which is, is now science is proving that they're, you know, but, but the unraveling that issue, which is really a modern issue. Although what I think is, is really interesting now is 
as written, the Food Safety Modernization Act is actually great in terms of federally mandating a, an approach based upon hazard analysis. And even its preventative controls, it's not this idea of we must have a kill step it's this idea of how can you reduce risk to an acceptable level. That's, that's how it's written. Whether that's in the mechanics of how it's going to be implemented, that's, that's a different question. Let's, ju- let's change subjects. Let's go to um, you know, cultures and microbes, talk a little about that. Nini also brought some bread. You can talk about microbes and bread. Start Because that's, that's your yeah, thing, isn't it, Brahman? You studied it. I mean, one of the things that if you're going to make cheese that expresses the microbes on your farm, you've got to have milk that has interesting microbes in it. And one of the reasons why this team of French scientists started doing a big part of their research was because they recognized that even in France, even in these communities with hundreds of farmhouse cheesemakers working in wonderful systems, the milk was getting sapped of its diversity, its microbial diversity, because of the way that they were preparing the teats and milking their animals because they were preparing it with a mindset that was all about sterility. And so even in Normandy over the past 30 years, they've witnessed a thousandfold decrease in the number of microbes in raw milk. And if you're trying to make cheese that has value because it tastes of its farm, and you're putting in milk that's practically sterile, you're breaking that link and um, you know, setting, stacking the deck against you from the very beginning. So the question that they were asking, and I think where the very most interesting research has been is, how through using, through subtly altering your farming practices, can you restack the deck in your favor and open the door to the good microbes? And that doesn't mean let's get some more shit in the milk because clearly that's not what makes good cheese. What you want is to open the door to the lactic acid bacteria that sour the milk, to the ripening bacteria that give you amazing rinds. That's a very subtle balance. It's one that we've completely lost, but it's one that science is helping us to answer. Nina, what about bread? Well, you know, bread is um, a fermented food, and one of the things that I've been delving into uh, in the bread industry is, you know, wheat has been the big enemy recently, and it makes me pretty upset. Uh, And what I have, what I surmise, what I guess, is that um, early hunter-gatherers collected the seeds from some grasses and not from others. And these tall grasses had some really great seeds, and then they would save those seeds and plant those seeds again. And um, more recently, in our wanting to get more pounds of these seeds, which are wheat berries, per acre, uh, hybridization, crossing different types of grasses, you could get a fatter and fatter berry on each grass, which is great. But eventually, that berry got heavy and made that grass break and fall over. And scientists say, hey, there's this really short grass over here. Let's cross it in. It'll still be weed. But that's a grass that I guess hunter-gatherers, the early hunter-gatherers, got a stomachache from that grass and never really cultivated it to make their food. And now we've got those genes in there. So I'm using only weeds that are tall, four feet tall, seven feet tall. And they're tastier. They grow better in all kinds of weather, and again, they vary from season to season, which becomes a problem for a big monster bakery that has machines, and you, you know, it pours in from a truck and it pops out breads the other side. My breads have to be formed by hand. 
So at Bob Link, you beans. make bread too. And we make bread. What am this I eating? Bread this bread really is good. made from a New York State-grown rye farmer ground in Trumansburg, New York. They grew the rye. They grew the wheat in this bread. I'm using some oat groats, which we soak overnight in an in an ale starter. We started our starter with Belgian ale, Saison du Pont, in 2003, and we've just been bringing that microbial beneficial mix forward since then. We feed it more more grain and water every day and we hold it over. It's like a sourdough. Can, can you describe a little bit about your technique? Are you using sort of high acid transfer? Are you using, are you, are you, are you, are you making bread with a, with, a, with, a, with a sweet levain? Is it recently refreshed or, or do you let it, or, or do you prefer using something a little bit more mature? So one of the nice things, we've been talking about polyculture. And one of the things that I like about our starter is that it's got about nine different yeasts working together. So it has um, a wide range of flavors in it rather than being a single note sour. I, I uh, build the starter the day before, so uh, around noon on a day. And then the next day is when we mix that into the dough. And then this dough, so this dough, if I'm going to bake this bread on Wednesday, I feed my starter on Monday. I mix my dough on Tuesday and then I bake it on Wednesday. So this is a nice chewy bread. It's got a lot of complex flavor and it also keeps exceptionally well because it was made And the dynamics soundly. of your fermentation, are you, is it a constant moderately low sort of cellar temperature fermentation or are yes, you doing actually, some, some stuff at ambient and then, and then retarding it? Well, I vary it seasonally because I don't want to have to have temperature controlled rooms in order to, you know, I don't want to use energy. I'm trying to be sustainable here. So actually in the winter time when it's about 60 degrees in the bakery because it's in the old barn that has a stone wall, when it's 60 degrees or 55 degrees in the house, I'll actually mix the bread at 80 degrees so that it get, it'll get a burst of microbial activity at first, and then an hour later we'll throw it in the fridge for the 24 hours. In the summertime, we actually have quart containers of ice to cool the water down to mix the dough because the ambient temperature by late August in the bakery is 85 degrees. So I need to have the dough be cool so it will ferment at the same rate. So uh, we vary it seasonally. One thing, uh, just some backstory, Brahman. You know, when you started out, at one point, did you work with Anita and Jonathan at Bob Link? I did. Tell us that story. Um, back when I was freshly returned from the Peace Corps in Senegal in 2004, I was trying to find my path, and um, I spent a season working at Bobbling Dairy when it was in Vernon, New Jersey, um, milking cows and making cheese, and it was really my introduction to uh, the craft of cheese making. Um, I feel like it really, you know, it was really lucky that I ended up in a very place that was farming very extensively, which had great biodiversity in terms of its cows, the fields, and everything, and I guess I didn't realize at the time how important that would be to informing my direction from there. And Steve, how did you get started in this business? We're going to wrap it up in a little bit. Uh, well, I'm a chef actually by training and uh, stumbled into retail and uh, was fortunate enough to meet Jason Hines and Meal Jar Dairy and tried uh, Colson Bassett that had sat in his luggage for about 40 hours and was some of the best cheese I've ever had. And, uh, from that moment on, I have been hooked on cheese. 
It's a wonderful industry. Hooked on cheese. Hooked on cheese. That's going to be your book, Hooked on Cheese. Well, you know, 20 years in, I'm still learning, and that's the industry where you will continue to learn. And uh, if you aren't learning, it's because you're lazy or you've given up. And, you know, this book will be out soon, Reinventing the Wheel, uh, Bronwyn Percival, Francis Percival, Milk Microbes and the Fight for Real Cheese. We talked about it a little bit. We covered some great, great service. I'm a little over my, under, over my head with you guys. This is a, quite a cheese panel. Um, Greg, how did you get started? Because I know you're, you're working at Eataly. You've got your own Cutting the Curd radio since show. I've about 94, 95. Uh, bought my first cheeses from the dairy. Neil's got dairy about 95. I knew those guys way back. Bought my first cheeses from the egg farm dairy, maybe 1994, 1995. Some square cheddar from you guys way, way, way back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like the, like Steve said, like I've never, I've never found a better thing to do in my life. The people I get to meet, the things I get to do, and the stuff I get to be a part of is everything I wanted to be. It just took it to find me to know that. You know what I mean? This is really great, and I hate to cut it short. We're going to wrap it up because in a little bit, the Culinary Historians in New York talk is going to start with Francis and Ron. We're going to set up the room, and uh, this was so cool. We put up the call just the other day, and Greg jumped up and found out that Nina had worked with, with Brahman years ago, and, and Steve canceled his plans to come in for this. So it's been really great. Everybody just one more time, say your name, and uh, we'll sign off. This is Bronwyn Percival. Francis Percival. Greg Blaze. Nina Stein-White. Stephen Miller. And I'm really honored to meet these guys, especially uh, Bronwyn and Percival from Reinventing the Wheel. I've heard so much about Neil's Yard over the years and um, look forward to seeing this book out soon. Thanks for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. We will see you soon. Cheers. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.